Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with my good friend, Diana Lucia Dragonetti. I first encountered her work in 2019 when she was the co-host of an infamous and highly influential podcast, whose guests included the most outrageous and extreme characters from across the internet. In 2023, the show no longer exists online and has been removed from all platforms. Diana has no social media. She is almost entirely offline. Her contact info is included in the show notes for this episode. Diana's life is devoted to her art and her faith. In this episode, we'll explore the connections between the two. I think to achieve sainthood, really, you just have to be, uh, you have to meet certain criteria, like cold personality or something like that. And then the hmm. church just decides like, yeah, okay, that guy's a saint now because there's like 60 people who say that he's a saint. You know, it's a little, di- it's a little dicey. <laughs> they've got like a Patreon for sainthood? Yeah, I don't know. It's a little, it's a little, the, some of the saints they've led in the last few centuries, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, the only person who was ever without sin is Jesus Christ himself. The rest of us, the rest of us are sinners. So it is a great equalizer in that way. And if the least of us couldn't be saved, then none of us could be saved. Well, okay. So that is, that's what I find especially interesting about Christianity and its implicit politics, because one could imagine that in the mind of a feudal serf, the idea that both the king and the peasant would be equal before the eyes of God, Mm -hmm. right? That you could have a, a sinful king that would be rejected from the gates of heaven, but the peasant would be allowed in that massively overturns the existing social hierarchies of that time, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there is always this kind of like seed of a revolutionary consciousness within Christianity. That's, that's a pretty incredible term, you know, to evaluate yeah. people as individuals. And in terms of the broader project of the enlightenment and the value of the individual and reason, all of those things have their origins within Christianity. The idea that the king may be wrong, the existing order may be wrong, the lawful structures of today may be morally unjust. That's a very powerful idea, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was the kind of Christianity that I was brought up with. But, you know, you think about it today and you think of paleoconservatism, you think of tradcaths, traditional Catholicism, and then you think of all of these (laughs) reactionary political programs, which we associate with religiosity in the United States. Those things are like totally conflicting Mm -hmm. in my mind. Which is, you know, it's curious. I try to keep track of these things, of like religious left-wing organizations, and there's very few of them that exist. Mm -hmm. I went to, oh, what is the name of the uh, organization? I went to the Catholic Worker. Catholic Worker. Yeah, the original Dorothy Day organization, Mary House, that's Mm. in the East Village. And today it's largely a soup kitchen. You see homeless people come up and they knock on the door and they get a bag of food or soup or whatever it happens Mm -hmm. to be. They also publish the Catholic Worker which costs uh, a single penny that they've been publishing for 88 years. Wow. Maybe 89 by this point. I think I went last year. I got the May Day issue, 88th year of the Catholic Worker. And it's, it's amazing to think that just a few decades ago, that kind of like workers' rights anarchism was popularly associated with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. That's right? true. And that a few decades past, like of our parents' generation, JFK was a Catholic, Catholics mm-hmm. were associated with the Democratic Party. And now we think all Christians are like these war-toting evangelicals of mm-hmm. part of the Bush coalition. Like a lot of these kind of documentaries around that time where you saw 
children wailing like they're in a fucking North Korea propaganda scene. Mm. And they're like screaming out and like touching the face of George Bush and like <laughs> to protect the American <laughs> empire. Like that is the popular conception uh, that's of Christianity in America. But uh, it's it's interesting to go and, you know, revisit some of those histories and see them in their less robust form now. I mean, the issue of the Catholic worker specifically was very interesting because they had these beautiful woodcuts that illustrated the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, a physical piece of newsprint, right? This is like an actual newspaper. You can't get it online. This is actually this kind of labyrinthian. Um, you can't get it online. Uh-huh. You can only get it in person. You have to pay for it. I think I gave the guy a, a dollar because it just felt absurd to pay a penny, you know? <laughs> Uh, but like they, they won't accept more for it. That's the thing. It's like, they want to keep the price extremely low so that like it's accessible to the workers and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, but the text in the newsprint issue was a transcript of a zoom meeting. So many different layers of like online and offline that are, uh, yeah, really confusing in this particular era. But, you know, oddly enough, they have, I think 250, what do they call them? They have a specific name for it. They have 250 hospitality houses that are open and functioning mm-hmm. today. Like this is still an existing organization. Many of them are quite small, but they still exist. Mm-hmm. It's still around. I guess the problem with every anarchist organization is that they refuse to centralize anything <laughs> such <laughs> that you can't really account for what the other chapters are doing. Uh, yeah. um, that's why I'm not an anarchist, by the way. But uh, what do you have to say to that, the checkered history of these things and kind of where, where these alliances have shaken out now. What if that story sits right with you and what if it seems incongruent? What people will do with the religion is kind of their own business. It's not that I don't have an opinion, it's just that people do a lot of, you know, and it, it's almost like, a, you know, sometimes it's offensive. I mean, what people do with the religion and over time how that changes and how it also is affected by what is like socially acceptable at the time or politically motivated or whatever, like and what is considered normal and, and whatever. I mean, the other thing that I noticed is like there's a lot of, among younger people, there's an awful lot of sacrilege. I actually don't know if if it is politically opposed to this sort of like trendy kind of fascination with Catholicism, which is kind of reactionary, because I would argue that that's sacrilegious as well. It's a fascination with the symbolism and the aesthetics of Catholicism, really, or of Christianity, that people will do terrible things to the image of God. And there's more freedom to do so, of course. But it's it's all kind of like immaterial to me in a way. Like, it's not that I don't care, that I just, it's, I almost just like, because I know what's true, and what's true is the theology, and I know it's like I know God. I don't I don't know God that I can really say with confidence that I could represent God in every moment of my life accurately, and that God would would consign everything that I've ever done in my life at every moment. That's of course not true, but I know God. I love God, and God loves me, and I love Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ died for my sins. I mean, and He died for all of us. He died on the cross. It's like the most monumental moment of human history. That. That that happened at all, I mean, like, it gives me pause in my daily life that I feel like I can't function because it's just so profound that I I can't imagine it. So I don't really think that much about the religious institutions. I mean, I will sometimes go to church, and I'll receive sacraments at a church. I'm very grateful for the existence of churches, but I don't really involve myself in any particular faction because mostly they make me uncomfortable. I think the thing that people can lose sight of here is that we're living in an extremely politically polarized environment. And when we had a little bit more of a religious society a few decades ago, for example, 
I could never imagine a Democrat-leaning family and a Republican-leaning family getting into an argument over church. No, like they would actually yeah. set aside their differences and they have an agreed upon system of values. I mean, that's why I have trouble answering questions like that almost. Not that I, I'm not trying to not give a, a satisfactory answer. I just, I have trouble because I don't really, it's, it's not that I don't care exactly, but it's almost like it has very little to do with me, like my experience of religion um, in a way that I would liken to like, I'm not saying that I'm a saint, certainly not, but what the saints wrote about experiencing is something that I understand because there is like, a person is sort of not existing in the physical world. St. Francis would write about like having exited the world and some of them describe having one foot in one world and the foot in the other. And so I've kind of, I'm kind of borderline with that in, in that way where I just don't really, like what's real to me in reality, I mean, I hate to say this because I could also just as well characterize myself as being pathologically disconnected from reality. And that's like not a, not a nice thing to think about myself. But at the same time, like what's real about life to me is so limited to my very specific activities because like I said, it's just like this unrelenting drive and so my religion is that, and my art is that, and my life is that. So I don't really, I don't really contextualize it otherwise. How does your faith play into your interpretation or rendition of these works that in some cases can be many centuries old? As I understand it, because I'm not an expert in opera, but you're doing a very traditional rendition of all of these pieces. Is that correct? Well, first of all, there's uh, the way that people do, because I'm mostly interested, I like Baroque music the most. That's just a personal preference. I really like a lot of the artistic conventions and musical conventions of that period, as well as the subject, um, because that's an earlier time in the history of music. And so it was less secular. Um, so to me, it's more interesting. So even though the stories, there, there are characters who are not you know, they're not from scripture necessarily, although there was a lot of there was a lot of scriptural, you know, oratorio and stuff and a lot of sacred music during that time I really like. But even the, the more secular operas, those characters were taken from myth or from epics, you know, so they're they're more archetypal. They're not really a slice of life. Like it's not like stories about real people who could exist in society. When you say myth, are you talking about the Bible or are you talking about like regional myth, local myth, or are no, you talking like about Orpheus. scenes from the Bible? Okay. Yeah, like so Greek myth, Greek and Roman myth, there's there's quite a bit of that. Like there's several Orphean operas, um, one of the most- It sounds a little ones. pagan, doesn't it? Well, it does, unless, you know, I have a, I have a Christian interpretation of, of Orpheus, which of course maybe is What not, is it? You really want to know? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, I've thought about, I haven't written this out or anything, but I've thought about it. But of course, Orpheus, now it depends on whose opera- you look at because some of them are more true to the myth than others. In the original myth, Eurydice is killed. Orpheus gets this chance, I believe, from it's from Cupid or somebody arranges for Orpheus to go into the underworld so that he can retrieve Eurydice. And the conditions are that he can't look back at her. He has to take her all the way up to the surface. And once they reach the surface, then right. then they'll be reunited, whatever. Okay. And then what happens is that before, at the, the last moment before he reaches the surface, for whatever reason, he looks back at her. Maybe he was afraid that she wasn't there. I don't recall. And then he sees her die a second time, essentially, where she's really, she's spirited away back down into hell uh, never to be resurrected again because this was his only opportunity. So some Orphean operas interpret it differently, interpret the myth differently because they can. Um, and also, I think, because of the influence of Christianity, because in Christianity, there is redemption. This sort of thing doesn't really happen in Christianity, that someone can die and, 
and permanently and finally die, you know, who is being rescued from the underworld. So mm-hmm. in my in one of the best operas probably of all time, which is Orpheus and Eurydice uh, by Gluck, who was one of the great Baroque composers, one of my favorites. It actually is brilliant the way that he wrote it because it starts with Eurydice already having died. And so Orpheus is mourning Eurydice in the mm. opening scene, one of the best opening scenes to any opera. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It's Orpheus in a chorus, completely beautiful. And then the rest of the opera he does, he goes into the underworld, he retrieves her, and then they have this weird kind of, this really one, really well-written duet while he's leading her out of the underworld to the surface. And then she provokes him into looking back at her because she's out loud wondering why he won't look at her and believes for whatever reason that he's been unfaithful, even though he's gone down into hell. (laughs) (laughs) What's, what else does the man have to do? You know, but then he, for whatever reason, you know, they, they, it happens that he looks at her and then, you know, she goes back to hell, whatever. And then he sings that, that really famous aria, which is like my Italian is so bad, but I lo- I love that aria. It's beautiful, and it's also it was a kind of the it was kind of a hit at in its time. Uh-huh, really, it was a very popular like aria. It was like very well known in its time, um, and where he's just basically singing like that his life has lost all purpose and meaning, and that there's no there's no more hope, no no assistance for him, neither here on earth nor in heaven. There's nothing left for him. You know, he's really at quite a low point, but it's it's brilliant. It's a brilliantly written aria. But then I believe what happens is that love, you know, the person of love, Cupid or whatever, but I think that in the um, opera that characters refer to as love, love sees Orpheus's um, mourning and his devastation and then decides that they should be reconciled anyway. They should be reunited anyway. So then huh. he does resurrect her and then it's a happy ending to the opera. So it does really depend on your interpretation. But even with the original narrative of the myth, this would be then like evidence of how pre-Christian myth is sort of inferior to the analogous Christian experience or the analogous Christian narrative because Jesus Christ also descends to the underworld. And then he emerged from it triumphant and defeated death. So Orpheus can't defeat death. Orpheus is a human being, of course, but he, he fails to defeat death. He even fails in his faith. Which Jesus Christ, of course, is not a human being. I mean, he's as much God as he is man. That's the thing people seem to forget about him is that there's really no, there's no pure humanity to Jesus Christ. I mean, it's not possible for Jesus Christ to be solely human in any moment of his existence because he is also God. So where Orpheus could fail because of his lack of faith, because that's human nature, Jesus Christ never fails in his, in his mission, in the design that God put forth and successfully descends into the underworld and resurrects and defeats death. So there's a relationship between these stories. Which version of the opera do you perform? Do you perform the well, I like the music from traditional the- Greek mythology, or do you perform the Christian reinterpretation Listen, of the original myth? If Gluck had written it like Eurydice stays dead, I would still be singing his shit. He's great. So it's not <laughs> about like the that. music better. Yeah, the music's really good. That's what I'm saying. The music is really good. But it just so happened that he wrote it where oh, well, I'm going to reward these lovers by just pretending that death doesn't exist because death doesn't really exist because we live in a Christian society, you know? Yeah. That's my interpretation, though. I don't know how, you know, I'm just, I'm just assuming because that, to me, seems like a very Christian... Uh, no, it does. Yeah. I, I buy your interpretation of it. But one could say, like, a, a narrow interpretation of these stories is that it's a bit sacrilegious to be performing this polytheistic story as service to God in, in a monotheistic context of Christianity but or what have you. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
But I, the reason I can say this, I feel I can say this, is that my definition of what's beautiful is very narrow. Within the parameters of what I believe is beautiful, it's all kind of fair game in that it can serve God because it's beautiful. And I also think that a character like Orpheus, like I said, I mean, is sort of a representative of the human condition and a human suffering and human frailty, which is relevant to Christianity. What would you say to someone who does not share your religious convictions, but finds beauty in your performance? That's the point of it. What, what's at the core of the beauty is God. I mean, there is nothing that is beautiful without God in it. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's also why I would say there's nothing artistic without God in it, because I believe that those things are inextricable from one another. But the reason that God made me this way is so that I can demonstrate heaven to all people. Uh, because heaven does exist for everyone. And people also, whether or not they are consciously aware of it, have the ability to apprehend the sublime and beauty, even that which they don't understand consciously. They have the ability to apprehend it, and I believe that it can affect them and move them. And that is God. That is God moving through me. That's God affecting those people, because God is the progenitor of all beauty. And so it makes perfect sense to me why someone would think what I was doing is beautiful. It is be by design. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing that there is. And the nice thing about it is that these other ideas, politics or whatever, they don't get in the way of someone apprehending the truth, of, you know, the the beauty of heaven, the music of heaven. And none of that gets none of that has to, has to interfere with that. Yeah, it's interesting because someone who does not share your same religious belief their ability to find beauty in the work that you're portraying, the work that you convey, is proof to you of the existence of God. Well, it's even proof to them a lot of the time. It's just that they never had the occasion to experience God this way, which is really closer to the truth of God. Because God isn't hateful. God isn't, God isn't like the propaganda that people come across that's unpleasant or discriminatory. That isn't what God is. How would you introduce yourself today? I if never, you're not speaking to a podcast audience, if you just, you met somebody at an art opening or at an event, oh, like I, how would you describe what you do? Be more realistic. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very plausible. Where, where would I actually be? I don't introduce myself to people. <laughs> I'll say nice to meet you. I'll say nice to meet you. I've seen you at, uh, I don't know, let's say like four or five different performances at art galleries. Were they ones I did? You're singing. That's yes. why I was there. And okay. So when you meet someone before you perform for I don't the audience. I speak to anyone before I perform. <laughs> and then I just look for the exit. You know? <laughs> so as you're fleeing out the door. People and, do try to stop me. And someone stops you uh, and they ask, what's your name and what do you do? Well, they already know my name if they're there. They might not know that it's you that's performing. <laughs> They're just stopping you as a random individual. Okay. So why would I, why would I give a stranger my information? <laughs> just accosted by, if I were accosted by a stranger, how would I respond? I'd yeah, say, hey, they, get away from me, They buddy. cornered you and they were asking what your name is and what your profession is I and what are your hobbies and what I are your beliefs and think what I'd do you be, find interesting. I'd be putting myself at risk, yeah, if I were accosted by a stranger. I don't know. Um, usually when people, when I meet people, they tell me their name and they say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I say, nice to meet you. And I'll shake their hand, and that's what I say. And if they want, if they want to know more about me, they ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very difficult person to get a hold of, I guess. I'm difficult in lots of ways, I guess. No, but the system works because somebody else usually comes along who does know who I am. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> and they so they'll, they'll introduce, they introduce me this and person. they'll say, "Oh yeah, that's you know me." So you know, and that person will say something like, "This is Diana. This is the great opera singer. This is the great opera, the greatest opera singer." That's what they always say. <laughs> They'll say something like, this is Diana Dragonetti. She's a talented <laughs> opera singer that performs at art museums oh. and different places around New York City. And she's got a cult-like following. That's not true. And will show true. up and stand in 90 degree heat did that, listening to you sing. Did that happen? Yeah, it was there. It was 90 degrees? It was really hot. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I don't have control over that, sorry. It's not your fault for the weather. Do you consider yourself an artist now? No. There was a month where I thought I was an artist, about about a month. And that's why, I started, like I said, I started coming up with philosophical ideas, because I thought, I'm an artist, <laughs> so I need to, I must define my practice. And then I just got to be a better musician, so I forgot about all that, because it didn't seem very important. Well, I guess it's an important question, right? So I come uh -huh. from the background of photography, where there's always this looming question of like, how do you identify yourself? Where, let's say you're at an opening, you're at a dinner, you're at an event, whatever it happens to be. Someone comes up to you and they say, hi, I'm so-and-so, what's your name, what do you do? Do you identify yourself as an artist or a photographer? And um, people pick different sides of that issue because if you're showing in galleries and you happen to make other things, but you also make primarily photographs, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm an artist, I make photographs. They'll say something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you're a fashion photographer or you're a street photographer or you're a journalist or whatever it happens to be, they'll say, capital P, photographer, not artist, because they want to differentiate the context in which their work is shown. Those are meaningful decisions. Those are meaningful distinctions in how people classify their own work. So do you identify yourself as an artist or a musician? I would, I would say I was an opera singer, I guess. Mm. But I guess I am different from, broadly speaking, opera singers, because I, I do have artistic sensibilities and not everyone, you know, like my coach says, you can be a very dumb, very good opera singer. <laughs> because it's, it's sort of like being an animal, being a well-trained animal. But I have artistic sensibilities, which is what makes my work, so to speak, like it's what makes my work good, because the, that comes into play when you're choosing repertoire or making like artistic choices, expressive choices within the music as you're singing. There's not a lot of opera singers in 2023. This is oh. not the most popular profession. Oh, is that so? Yeah, <laughs> you may be aware. Yeah. So how do you choose that pursuit? What drew you to opera and why do you choose to do that now? Well, I think there aren't a lot of stars. I think there are probably, well, I don't know how many operas. I also, if, if somebody told me they were an opera singer, I'd walk the other way. I, would, I wouldn't want to know them, I guess. So it's not like I am meeting opera singers often. I, like I said, I avoid it. I avoid them like the plague. But um, there are not a lot of stars. Yeah, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of singers. There are a lot, a lot of like good musicians who are the products of schools and conservatories uh, or fine musicians, technically speaking, musicians, but they aren't necessarily beautiful and they don't necessarily reflect in their work or ability what is great about opera and oddly there is this kind of fascination with opera that i i've detected like a trend because i hear other people talking about it sometimes those few times when i've allowed myself to be around the public in a similar way that i've heard people talking about my religion and so i think there are trends where people that they indicate that people are fascinated by something that they don't actually appreciate nor do they understand you know what it is or what's great about it so it does create a potential role for someone like me in society <laughs> who does know what's great about those things to demonstrate them to other people. But why, why do I like it? Well, it's sort of uh, 
beyond me why I do it and and why I like it. It's just it's just a fact of what is. It's just the life that I have. I do think it's a it's the purpose for which I was chosen or for which I was made. It's like a religious vocation, but it is objectively speaking the most beautiful thing. Um, and so, why would I want to do anything with my life other than what is most beautiful? Trends in religion are usually not mentioned next to each other. Those are two things that seem antithetical because one is eternal ah. uh, and durable <laughs> and lasts uh, forever. You know, that's true. Before time, during your life, and then after time for eternity. And the other is uh, very momentary, <laughs> fickle. Is here and goes away the next week. What do you say to people that claim that you started? The Tradcath meme. Who said? Who says that? No one says that. Multiple people have said that. Do you know them? Per- people you know personally. I know them personally, and well, tell them to stop. <laughs> I could I could name them, but I won't name them. They said that you started. It. Who are these insane people? These sick people who say things like that. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, I was not. That doesn't make any sense. That's that's really silly. What an awfully silly thing to say. Because I think in order to have originated something like that, I would have had to have done that, and I didn't. So I've never, I've never done anything in line with that. I never made any memes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never made a meme. Sometimes existing on the internet is a meme in itself. Well, then those people are, are sick people who dehumanize me, I guess. Do you feel like phrasing your religious conviction as a momentary trend that will disappear a week following is uh, offensive yes. to your beliefs? Yes. Well, because it's a, I, I, that's not what religion is. If it's a conviction, then it can't only last a week. That's not a real conviction. Tell me about your interest in classical music. This is a big part of your life. You have to train for this. It's very strenuous. It's physically difficult to move your voice, to move your uh, vocal cords in such a way. I've heard you progress over the last few months especially. You are a very talented performer. You're a very skilled performer. It's not dissimilar to training in the gym where mm-hmm. you have to manage your nutrition and your sleep and basically have to live your entire life in order to prepare for this very strenuous training, literal training, right? You are training your vocal muscles. Tell me about how your commitment to that craft structures the rest of your life. It's the only thing that there is. So if you, if you mean in terms of my life now, it's the only thing that there is. That's that's the reason that I am in this the city that I am. It's the only thing I care to do with my time. The rest of my life just is, it exists around that. Um, so that's also the only reason I really have to care about my health anymore is that I want to be well enough to sing. It's the only thing I have to lose. <laughs> now, that I, um, now that I have it, I finally have it. I didn't have it these last, you know, so many years. I didn't have anything. Now I've got something to lose, really. So it's the most precious thing there is to me. But I didn't always feel that way about it because when I was a child, I mean, I had some exposure to classical music and I had some interest, but I really, oddly, you know, what I was saying before about how people have these uh, kind of fleeting fascinations with things that are of incredible importance to me, classical music and my religion, oddly, the development of more serious feelings about those things, it occurred for both around the same time in my life. I was about 18 because I experienced, I became religious really around 18 because I had a mystical experience. I had like a call 
you know, that, that made me a Christian, even though I had been confirmed and baptized, whatever, I sort of operated my entire life as a, as a Christian, as a Catholic, um, but I was not sincerely religious in the same way. I didn't feel the presence of God the way that I suddenly did around 18. And similarly, when I was 18, I remember I started listening to my parents have this, just like a compilation CD, a very popular opera, arias, and, you know, whatever, the very popular singers. And, you know, they're not all singers I would want to listen to now, but when I was when I was 18, I didn't really know any different. And I recall the first time I heard Maria Callas, who's still, I think, she's one of the greatest singers of all time. I mean, that's just kind of undisputed. But the first time I heard her sing this aria from Samson and Delilah, I remember I was in college, or, and, I, and I told everybody to shut up. <laughs> I was like, shut up. <laughs> And I was, cause I was like, I was like crying. I was in tears, you know, because it was just sublime. It was an experience of the sublime. So that was about the first time. It's not that I'd never had experiences, you know, analogous experiences prior. I'm not sure if I did or didn't. I don't recall them the way that I recall these things is so vividly. But regardless, like I started to take it a bit more seriously then and into my early 20s or whatever, but I never took it so seriously. As did I, you, did you train in your early 20s? I did. I mean, because I, I took voice lessons from the time I was a kid, relatively young, mm -hmm. but it's just, it's a different experience because it really does depend on a person's physical development, maturity. You know, you've, it's a different, you're working with some, a different anatomy as a child versus an adult. And also it depends on the, the technical ability of the person teaching you and the school from which they teach their method. And so the people that I worked with prior to now really weren't as skilled. Um, and they didn't, they also made, presumptions about my voice that weren't really accurate. Uh, I think because there's also just a certain idea of how men and women are meant to sing and what the ranges are supposed to be like. So there, there are things they won't explore with someone based on that, oddly. Um, but regardless, I was, I was taking lessons. I took lessons for a very long time, and then I started to take them more seriously in my early adulthood, but I still never took it so seriously as I do now. But I think it's because the stakes of my life changed dramatically. What would you say to people, especially very online people, that want to retrofit your dedication to this art into some type of reactionary political program? Well, I think it's silly. It's just a silly thing to do. I don't know why someone would do that. I guess I'll give a, a real explanation or a real counter argument to that, but um, because it really has nothing to do with politics. It's a vocation. I mean, it's like, it's almost like the, the experience is almost unintellectual in a way. Yes, I can intellectualize about it a lot. And I have, like I said, some somewhat developed philosophical ideas about opera and the meaning of opera and the meaning of, you know, the role of like a singer, or how to be the, the greatest singer there is, which is to say like a representative of heaven or something. I've got like a lot of ideas about it that are, they're, they're, they're interesting or whatever, but that's not really, they're still kind of beside the point. So it has no political meaning whatsoever. In fact, it has almost, <laughs> almost nothing to do with history. I mean, it, it does in a sense, there is something magical about the fact that it's like hundreds of years old or whatever, but I, I have no desire to go backwards in time and certainly no political stake in any of it. It's nothing to do with politics. Like my drive to be an opera singer is like being electrocuted. <laughs> like <it's>, <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's like being electrocuted because that's what this is sort of what, what being a true artist is. I mean, artist is almost an imperfect word for it because there's some kind of 
conscious choice that one makes to be an artist or something. And I'm not making a choice. I, I'm driven towards this thing in spite of myself. There's nothing I can do. I can't break away from it. So, so I have no, I have no ability to think about politics or anything of that nature. They just don't, they don't apply. They don't exist in that reality. It, it's just like this relentless pursuit that I'm forced by something beyond myself to pursue. And, and if anything, why do I love it so much and I live in service of it? It's because it's true and beautiful. So again, I mean, it has nothing to do with politics at all. Why are those aesthetics off limits to a lot of people? Which? Religious aesthetics, specifically Catholic aesthetics. I think people maybe have certain ideas about Catholicism. I don't, I don't necessarily blame them for having those ideas because there is a lot of like politically reactionary Catholicism or Catholics or Catholic organizations. And I think, unfortunately, like what you're saying before, the, the thing that people do online, you know, because it flattens stuff or it there's not a lot of uh, opportunity for complexity. So there's also, I, I've always felt that there's no spiritual dimension on the internet. It just doesn't exist on the sure. internet. It can't. So, you know, you can't replicate the feeling of God's presence in a church on any kind of digital space. It just doesn't work. So I think, unfortunately, then people lose sight of what is actually at the core of religion, which is that feeling, actually. It is really more about feeling and relationships and interior experience than it is about any kind of institution. It's just not nearly as important as just the sheer existence of God and what God's existence means for us. It's complicated today because if you think about religious organizations in the last few decades of American political history, particularly since the mid-80s, these groups have been involved in super conservative agendas. Mm -hmm. The literal logo for Christian nationalism as a diffuse movement is the American flag with <laughs> a white cross on the blue field in place of the stars, right? Yeah. And this is <laughs> extremely <laughs> homophobic and, you know, all of the phobias you can imagine them. So those are, those are things that are, I think, scare off a lot of progressives. Your project as an aesthetic project not necessarily a political project, strikes people as being rather novel because they're not used to seeing those types of symbols and aesthetics being combined. It seems like this is a transgressive space. This is a newly transgressive space. Being, being Catholic? Yeah. Um, well, you know, <laughs> so many people would agree with you. That's the thing that Christians always say is that Christians are the most persecuted, <laughs> which, <laughs> which in my case is true. <laughs> no, but... Um, yeah, well, the, I guess, I guess, arguably, I'm. I mean, I hate. To, yeah, I guess, arguably, I'm. I'm kind of transgressive because I don't really belong in either camp. You know, I could be defined in a number of ways by people who kind of. I wouldn't say they're necessarily ill-intentioned, but maybe it's a kind of like bad faith engagement. But I think it may not even be totally conscious on part of m most people because it's just that they don't, they can't accept that there's a, there's a possibility that something could exist simply because it's beautiful. Do you choose certain roles? You know, I would like to portray this character. Like you hear this from an actor that they have a certain penchant or they identify with a certain character in the story. It's like, oh, I'd love to act in that role. Does that inform your decision for the pieces that you'd perform? A lot of them are just arias that I like, but some of them, there are a few roles I'd like to, I'd like to portray. Mostly Cleopatra, just because I like her. And it's not really, you know, it's no good reason for it. I think I'd be a great Cleopatra. And then Orpheus and then Dido, probably. 
And then, you know, I could play a soldier in the Crusades, I guess. I, I always thought that was an interesting idea if I could, because I, I look exact. if you took the helmet off of a soldier in the Crusades. <laughs> okay, in an ideal setting, in the most ideal, so basically in a, in a universe that doesn't really exist, in the most ideal form of, the, of a soldier in the Crusades, if you took the helmet off of his head, he would look like me. That's what I always thought. So I would be a great Ronaldo or something, but. You know, as far as roles that actually appeal to me based on the, the, the actual repertoire as I'm familiar with it, then Cleopatra Orpheus, definitely. She just has great, I mean, her arias are so, are these all, you know, those are the three main, I guess Bach's is technically also Baroque, but Handel, Gluck, and uh, Purcell, those are like kind of the big guys. So they're all covered. I covered all my bases with those roles. I was going to say before, by the way, I completely forgot, but about the whole interaction of pagan or pre-Christian with the Christian stuff, I think also a lot of the work in the Baroque era is like it reflects that that occurrence in history because it's similar to like the the dream of the root is more like early English literature. Um, but I, I've always really liked that because it was like a union of it where rather it marked like the Christianization of uh, Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, whatever. So that, that particular representation of Christ in the dream of the root is as like a hero, a warrior hero hero type who mounts the cross like a you know and is is basically even though especially more um traditionally christian representations of christ where he's meek and mild and he's also on the cross he's emaciated he's humiliated you know uh which is which of course you know he suffered innumerable indignities on the cross which is very important to us theologically it's very important because it it's it it, uh shows us uh, that he experienced the entire gamut of human suffering but the purpose of a text like the Dream of the Root in its in its historical context was to encourage the conversion of non-Christians into Christians, and so there was a marriage of their values with Christian values, and so Jesus Christ is like is is truly like this triumphant hero, uh, this like warrior king who mounts the cross. So I, I think in a similar way, it's like a lot of these the way that they approached like a myth and well, and also some some epics had something like Christian subject matter, like the like Ronaldo's about. The crew in Orlando about the Crusades, um, so it, it wasn't like a far cry. The other thing is in the Baroque era, or rather, um, I mean that's when the the castrati were invented more or less around that time, and the reason for their invention was was for the explicit purpose of sacred music of upholding sacred music. So I always thought that was fascinating. I guess it's worth saying that I relate to the castrati, the idea of the castrati, quite a lot, um, both because. Uh, there's some anatomical similarity. Um, I have a very similar and oddly very similar range to the most famous castrati. Uh, castrato was uh, Farinelli. He was purported to have something like up to the soprano C, maybe a little bit extra, and then somewhat some below middle C. I have almost an octave below middle C, so I actually might out outdo him a little bit there, and then I have a little bit above the soprano C. So you know, it's almost like you can map my range onto his. So that's not the only reason, but that's I mean that's compelling enough. But um, what's always fascinated me about the castrati, or what rather, actually, it's not always, because I didn't always know the actual history, but the castrati were the invention of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church created the castrati in line with their interpretation of something Paul wrote in the New Testament, which prohibited women from speaking in churches. So because women couldn't speak in churches, they also couldn't sing in churches. And so instead of allowing women to sing in churches, they began castrating male children before puberty. 
which is so insane. insane. And, and this sa- for the sake of, of maintaining sexual divisions. I mean, it's completely insane. Leave it to the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. So the Catholic Unbelievable. Church. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Everything that I do as a, a crazy transvestite is completely, completely, uh, what's the word? It's uh, the Catholic Church approves. You know, it's, 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 in a, it's, a, <laughs> it's completely congruent with the history of the Catholic Church and how they've acted. You know, it actually, it does make a bit of sense when yeah. you phrase it like there that. You go. Yeah. So that's also that's also the sort of androgyny that I have. I mean, there are a lot of reasons I have that relationship, but um, with the idea, but no, it's, it's a compelling it's argument. It's very Catholic of me to be doing what I'm doing. I just want to say that because you know how people say that they, they make this assumption that uh, if someone is fascinated with something that's centuries old, then they must be reactionary or whatever. Um, right. When really it has nothing to do with the past, so to speak. So what is it that draws you to opera? Well, pre pre amplification technology. Or just why is the technique important? That particular technique is important because it does directly impact the aesthetics of the voice. So that the technique came about at the time that it did, it was somewhat by necessity because they didn't have any means of artificial amplification. That's why also there are the Greeks built structures like amphitheaters in mm-hmm. which voices could carry so that they could be heard. So it was a totally different, the, the possibilities were totally different. There was- Superhuman volume to hundreds of people. Right. Yeah. So it was both the structure, like the actual architecture of the venues, as well as um, the technique that created a very large sound, substantial sound. And that, of course, directly impacts the timbre, the color, and all the artistic, sort of the expressive possibilities of the voice. So that's why it's important, at least to me personally, as someone who lives in service of this art and who also wants to represent it in the most be- its most beautiful form that's that's why the technique is important because many singers today especially those who call themselves baroque specialists they don't it's not really accurate how they're singing baroque music because certainly the castrati and the other singers of the baroque era weren't singing with small voices on the throat you know small thin voices and using a straight tone they were using the italian bel canto technique everybody at the time was so it's not even historically accurate for those people who are reviving that repertoire. They're, they're doing so very poorly. And also it doesn't sound as beautiful as it, it truly can. Are they, they're doing this in the context of like a sound studio where they're performing into a microphone? Is yeah, that just sometimes. so I understand like superhuman volume and projection, you know, when you have to train your voice up through conservatory or rehearsal mm-hmm. or whatever to reach this enormous volume in the amphitheatrical projection of the operatic voice. That is not possible to emulate through like a, a microphone similar to what no. we have in the studio here in podcasting. Right, not right. at all. No, because it it changes the sound. And also like true operatic singing can't really, it's very difficult to record it. It doesn't, it's not compatible with a microphone because it just, it, it like whatever it does to the levels or something. The range, the range is yeah. too wide. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've seen yeah. this actually because the, uh, you will get either the microphone peaks or it doesn't record because it's just yes. beyond the latitude of sound that any microphone would be able to appropriately record without serious compression. So Right. So yeah, making yeah. a smaller, weaker sound more loud through artificial amplification does not in any way resemble the the same color or timbre as a true operatic singing. So that's why it's important. It has nothing to do with the fascination with the past in itself. You know, it has only to do with that the technique has such a tremendous impact on the aesthetic result. Also, the great thing about about opera, I mean, kind of peculiar about it is, um, at least when I was younger, I thought there were times when I had a real difficulty feeling in touch with my emotions um and and i would listen to a great contralto uh, singer and i remember thinking in what was conveyed through her voice just by its nature 
Um, it was like a sort of perfect expression of something that was inexpressible or even inaccessible to me at that time of the emotions that I would feel if I could feel anything. True operatic singing, I mean, that's why all these ideas about it in conventions sort of fall away because it's, it's just this incredible channel of expression, this channel of perfect expression that also can express those things that are inexpressible. And, it, and it's my own suffering, my own suffering, which, you know, there are unspeakable deaths to my, depths to my suffering because of everything that I've lost. But it really is the suffering of all humanity, and which is also the suffering experienced by Christ on the cross, because as I said, Jesus Christ experienced all human suffering, you know, over the course of the Passion, and thus all human suffering is redeemed. And so really, if, if nothing else, you know, what do I really care about expressing, I mean, it, with my life? What do I really care about gaining in my life or doing in my life? I couldn't trade that profound ability to express that I, I, I fail to express myself interpersonal on any other level in any way, you know, to anyone. Uh, I would never trade that for any other opportunity or any kind of fortune. Like, I, I, I couldn't because this is the only thing that makes me feel as if I'm alive. I actually agree with that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, that, that's the dynamic that we have is like, you know, we reach something where we should disagree and then the other person will argue back in the podcast, but it's always like, oh no, I actually agree with that. <laughs> and then the things you think where we would agree and be in alignment, no, I see this the complete opposite <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, it's always, uh, it's always interesting chatting with you and doing these kinds of episodes. We have a, in some cases, very compatible belief system, uh -huh. and in some cases, just totally like the opposite, absolute opposite. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's it's always interesting to me to see where those points of alignment are. And I also just happen to think that, in my own personal subjective opinion, your art practice is very fascinating and a very beautiful thing to witness. So I'm grateful Thank for you. that. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or Channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Thank you.